Hey, it's Brandon. Welcome to Transform Your Workplace. This episode is hosted and sponsored by Zenium HR. Zenium is supporting small and medium-sized companies all over the Pacific Northwest and beyond for their payroll processing, HR consulting, training and development programs, compensation, and much more. For more about Zenium and how we're transforming the workplace for many small and medium-sized companies, go to zeniumhr.com, and there's also a link in the show notes for quick access. I had a conversation today with Alyssa Carpenter. She's the author of How to Listen and How to Be Heard, Inclusive Conversations at Work. I loved this conversation. This is all about breaking down silos that we have inside the organization, how we could be more inclusive, and how to identify the strengths around us with our teammates so that we can grow as a team and be more effective. Uh, and of course, we talk about so much more like difficult conversations and meetings and all of these things that make for a great inclusive organizations. So I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And uh, if you loved this episode, please go to Apple Podcasts, give us that five-star rating. And in fact, we're two five-star ratings away from 100 reviews. If you wouldn't mind going there and just click in that little five-star, you don't even have to write a review. Just click that five stars. That would really help us. Thanks for tuning in for today's episode. We've got lots of great stuff coming. We'll talk to you soon. Alyssa, it is a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. You wrote a really interesting book called How to Listen and How to Be Heard, Inclusive Conversations at Work. I want to start with this stat that you had at the very beginning of the book, which I think sets everything up from Gallup, the, the state of the American Workplace Report, says that only 30% of employees strongly agree that their opinions count at work. So what's up with the other 70%? We're talking to ourselves and <laughs> nobody is listening. And it it stinks, I think. Like, this is just reading that statistic and reading their report, it's fascinating. We have almost two thirds of our workplace that people feel like they're not heard, feel like they're not valued, and it's awful. You don't really want to work for a place like that or be in that position. I think some of the challenges with uh, probably people not being heard is that we don't as in leaders have a chance to identify their strengths or we're not, we're not focusing on that or we don't ask them or we don't measure that is, are there ways to figure that out in a really easy way to see like, okay, I can, I can leverage that person's strength. They're, they're pretty introverted. They may be over here in this functional area, but there's gotta be a way to figure that out so we can leverage them and include them more in the organization. I love how you automatically went to strengths. Cause I think that's such a huge component, especially because if you are in your zone and you love what you're doing and you're good at it, you feel valued, you feel heard, you want to be in that space. And there are a couple ways that you can find your strengths. One is you can take Gallup's inventory and do the strengths finder assessment, which I love, and it'll give you your your strengths. It's 34 strengths in four talent domains. So relationship building, influencing, strategic thinking, and executing. So seeing where you fall in that space. 
And I enjoy doing that one specifically with teams and consulting because I'll find that some people are relationship builders, but they're never following through. Or people are strategic thinkers, but they can't get any buy-in and they're not influencing other people. So that assessment to me helps provide that common language or why the person next to you is just so frustrating and why you're always butting heads and you didn't realize that this is actually a strength and they're not that they're not listening to you in a meeting. That's why they're quiet. They're really brainstorming and thinking through and then processing. Also, along with StrengthsFinder, if you don't want to do the assessment, we can definitely talk about that too, is even just observing. Um, it can be a little bit harder, obviously, now and, and being virtually, but seeing what even inside yourself of what do you lose track of time doing? What do you love to do? Where do you gain energy from? And as a supervisor, if you were walking around or in a space where you see people, where are people losing track of time? Where are they really excelling? Or asking your teammates, even if you don't work directly with that person, what do you rely on that person for? What you know excites them or energizes them? So there's the assessment, but there's also just observing in yourself and, and having this conversation. Yeah, I started with the strengths because I think too often we get in the trap of focusing on the weaknesses. And I remember, I think it's Marcus Buckingham. He, he's like a big proponent of like, okay, let's focus on people's strengths and give them more of that instead of focus on the weaknesses. And I think a lot of our challenges come from like, okay, we've got to write a policy for this and and we got to reprimand somebody for doing that because it is, it's a weakness or a failure, but like, let's, let's bring out the strengths. Let's figure that out. So like if you do an assessment, like the strengths finders, what do you do with it after you determine somebody's strengths? First, you have to do something with it, <laughs> just yeah, in general right. baseline. Um, I think just working in the field for so long, whether it's an engagement survey or an assessment or something, you take it, oh, I've done that a few years ago, or yeah, I took that. Do you remember your results? And nobody does. Um, so it's starting the conversation. What, what's great about the Gallup assessment is you get it right away. So you can get your top five, which I suggest, versus all 34 at once, where you're completely overwhelmed and looking at the order. And we automatically look at our 34th, which I did, and figure, you know, what is my least strength and how can I build that up, which is not how you work with it. But with the Gallup assessment, there's different reports that you can get and pull and read more about yourself. So even reviewing the Strengths Insight Report and seeing what do these words mean? How do they fit? And some of the reports are even customized. So even if you have, let's say we have the same three out of five, how the report is structured and how you'll read it is different because it's based on how we answered all of the questions. And there's professional development things that are tied to it. So what you can do personally, but I love just starting conversations with people about what are, what are your strengths? What do they mean to you and how do you apply them or how do you see yourself using them? And if you're not sure, which sometimes we aren't, it's asking other people, when was the time that you saw me, you know, communicating really well as a team or including somebody else and just getting that baseline because in the arc there's three kind of steps to the process is name it being able to actually name your strength claim them oh they're mine right these are my five strengths and i'm using them and then aim it is that third piece of okay now i know what they are i claim them let me aim them and do certain things in directions so you have to kind of start at the baseline of the foundation a big portion of your book is all around inclusion. And I want to start with uh, generational differences because I think a lot of the problems in workplaces come from just really having a lack of understanding of people's tendencies or 
their experiences or really, I mean, that's a big portion of it. So what can you say about, you have a huge section about generation and I just want to touch just a little bit of it, but what would you say to the audience who's like, they really haven't done any work on understanding each generation and their tendencies and how they like to communicate? Like, where where would you start with that? Well, there are five generations working together right now and that's so different, right? So in the 90s, there were actually only three um, generations working together. So it's people are staying in the workforce longer. So you have traditionalists who are older and coming back really on more of a consulting basis. But I think the divide has become even more that we're virtual and people's just comfortability with technology and changing and communicating and just thinking about you were in an office space, you had your laptop forever, really, really comfortable with it. Now, maybe you don't have that device anymore. You have a new one, the start button somewhere else, the how, you know, now you're using Slack. Now you're maybe not on the phone, you're doing something else. And I think even regardless of generation, thinking about millennials or Gen Z, just because I'm comfortable with technology doesn't mean I'm comfortable with your technology. I still need to play with it. I still need um, to kind of work with it. But to me, the foundation of the generational differences in general and inclusion is starting the conversation and getting to know people. I think reverse mentoring is a great way to do that. Whether you're newer in the workforce or have been there forever, I think we can learn so much from each other about how to do things, but we have to be honest with ourselves and vulnerable of, I need your help. I would love your advice. It's okay to ask an 18-year-old a question about something, and just as much as it's okay to ask your C-suite executive about something, we have to create that foundation where people feel psychologically safe to start those conversations. Let's talk about some of the inclusion initiatives uh, that employers are focusing on. So uh, you wrote that diversity and inclusion initiatives and education is moving away from applying labels to everything. So uh, share more about that and and what you meant by uh, we're moving away from that. So I think, and I... When we talk about diversity and inclusion, sometimes we're talking about diversity and what diversity is. And that's great. Right now, we're going to see so many reports of the state of the workplace in 2020, the state of the workplace in 2021, of the percentage of, of people who are Black or women within your organization. And that's now we're like labeling people in that space. But that doesn't mean anything unless people feel included and feel like they belong. So now you have the numbers, you hit the numbers that you want. Just because you have 50%, it doesn't mean it's the same people staying. It could be this revolving door. And I think for so long, we were focusing on just this diversity aspect of it. What is it? What does it look like? But we're shifting, hopefully continuing to shift more on creating these these spaces where we can get the numbers, we can get diversity. And diversity is, there's three different types. So you have just demographic in general, which is our race, gender, ethnicity, then experiential. And then we have cognitive, which is where the neurological piece comes in and neurodiversity. But you have all these things and creating the psychologically safe space for inclusion, I think can be more important and should be part of the process with the hiring and the training. It seems like the foundation of all that, right? I think it is. And I think sometimes we just get it backwards of let's get the people and then let's move on. Yeah. But who are these people and why do we have them and what is our mission and how are we using the diversity to create and have new ideas and do people even feel like they can share their ideas? There's something that you wrote that just like punched me right in the stomach (laughs) because I'm, I'm a huge like 
platinum uh, is it the platinum rule or the golden rule like treat people as you want to be treated it's well intentioned like you wrote in the book but not everybody wants to be treated the way i want to be treated <laughs> so what do we do about that and maybe explain a little bit more about your thoughts behind that yeah it was interesting as i was writing the book and also getting together for my tedx talk and i've two kids they were talking about before a seven and ten year old and they say that phrase right you're just learned of treat others the way you want to be yeah, treated it makes sense totally makes sense right you're thinking of course i want to be respected of course i want people to value me but it may be in a different way. And even one of the examples I share in the book is as much as I do things in public in terms of public speaking and training, I really hate public recognition. It frightens me. I do. When people would call me out in a meeting of Alyssa did a great job or at a town hall, it's, I I don't like it at all. Just send me a thank you note. Just (laughs) pull me aside. Like don't put the attention on me. No, I'm going to give you public recognition because I like it. No, I'm kidding. I'm no, not. But I but know that, that makes that's the point. Right. And that's, and same with even communication of, I like email. So now I'm going to defer to email because that's the way I work. But if we're not asking people, how do you like to be treated? Or how do you like to seek praise? I might be complimenting you in a way that is actually freaking you out and giving you anxiety that you have to go up and collect this award in front of all these other people. So it may be well-intentioned, but without the background and the conversation, it may not actually be how the other person wants to be treated. Now, the foundation is there, right? We should be treating people with respect. We should be valuing other people. But how we do it will differ based on what that means to other people. You talk about allyship uh, in the book, and so I've heard this term a lot. I've I've interviewed a couple people, and we talked about allyship. But I think the way you wrote about it was good. And um, I want you to define what is an ally, and how can I be one? It's that was a good segue there. I think that was the chapter title, if I remember right. Well, it was so funny. I wrote. Um... A very brief post on LinkedIn the other day. Just it's so easy to say that you're an ally. It's one of those things, I'm an ally, and you're almost bragging. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes more about you and really all about you, and less, if not at all, about the population that you're trying to be an ally for. And it's kind of funny in the sense that it's like, I'm doing this, I'm so great. Um, but an ally is somebody who's there to support someone or group of people, very typically in a marginalized group. With that said, a lot of it is not speaking. It's listening. It's understanding. What do you need from me? What can I do to support you? Sometimes it's passing the mic to them or standing up for somebody else. And sometimes it's really just taking that back seat because I've definitely wronged people in my effort to be an ally of trying to advocate for things and changes for people who didn't want them because I just assumed that they needed that. You know, they needed that thing um, that I thought was so important. You wrote, uh, just on that note, because I thought it was perfect, you said show up when the cameras aren't flashing. And I think that was like your LinkedIn point, like where people do the humble brag thing and they're like, oh, look, look, everything I'm doing. But it's like, are you really like behind closed doors? Are you really like doing anything to help the group, that's really what an ally should be, right? Yeah. And it's exactly, it's showing up where, and it could be hypothetical cameras or real cameras. If it's, if your boss is not there, it does not mean that you don't also, you can also go to this event. You can go to this event that there might be four people and you're having a conversation with, you know, it doesn't have to be this big publicized thing. You should go to learn, to understand, to observe, to ask questions. Um, but it's tough because 
pretty typically in allyship, you are the minority in the group that is potentially a minority. And it might be the first time that you've ever been a minority. So to step in that space and feel a little bit uncomfortable of what that might feel like for other people is not, it's just not easy. Um, So, you know, now I think the virtual space is a great way to ease into it a little bit. You see an event that you might be interested in. You're not, you're still comfortable in your home, you know, and then you're attending this virtual event, ease in, build relationships, and then you can kind of go from there. I read your book on Kindle, uh, and this was on page 61. I don't know if it, if the paper copy matches it, but uh, there's a glossary of terms related to inclusion that I was I was like, this is so helpful. Because so <laughs> we throw around all these terms, and I get confused by it. I'm not perfect in this area, but what are some of the terms that are your favorites that like, if you could just help define those so people don't confuse them? Like, what What's one of those that you would throw out there? I think even the ones we were talking about before in terms of the difference to me between diversity and inclusion, because sometimes they're just so bucketed together, but diversity is the who, and then inclusion is the what. So it's really asking those questions, not only asking people what they want, what they're looking for, provide the space for people at the table, but actually listening to what they have to say and taking it into consideration. And diversity just means there are people here. There are people in this large room. It doesn't mean you're you're involving them or bringing them or giving them a seat to the table. So I think we sometimes stop at the diversity piece and don't realize there's more to that to that equation there. You talk about silos inside of an organization. I see those all the time and it's like inevitably they happen. Um, I don't know if it's like the functional roles that are the functions within an organization that really develop those silos. How do we break those down? It's one of my biggest pet peeves, I have to say. And there's some silos. There is a reason why silos exist, depending on the situation in the organization. But I think it's figuring out why they're fundamentally there. And oftentimes, it's reinventing the wheel and then just creating more toxicity. And I remember, and I think I even talked about this in my book as well, just going into certain job interviews and having different committees of people from different departments interview me throughout the day and hearing about different events that were happening on the same day and time for the same population and then not even realizing that they were doing this. They were competing against other people in their office for airtime for the same people. And it, again, starts with conversations, even a shared calendar of what are we doing for our clients? What events are happening? Where is funding going? Because you do get so in your zone and it's not you're not doing it on purpose per se, and it's you just don't know what's going on around you. So if we're not having conversations, even if you're not doing a liaison system of you work for marketing and I work for finance, one representative a month comes to your team, you know what's going on, you can report back, and it's something that's really cyclical. So you can see the beginning of a project all the way to the end, and then you can see it's kind of touch points. You don't know what you don't know, and you don't know the questions to ask because you didn't know it existed. So sending people out there asking just questions of what is going on with your team? What can we support you with? What are you already doing? It will save you time and money and quite frankly, the the largest headache. Because I think to your point, it seems like the lack of information sharing across functions is what perpetuates the silo effect. And it's, it's not that, I mean, there are 
reasons why people don't share inform knowingly share information in terms of their fear that they're going to lose their job. They're afraid that other people are more skilled than they are. You know, there's so many reasons behind that, but it's also, you just don't know what people need to know. Right. And yeah, then I yeah. don't know what questions to ask you. Cause I didn't even know you did that. Right. But that's coming out of a way of like, that's a, a fear mindset. So there's no, nothing psychologically safe about that type of environment. So I think sharing more information and having more trust, like that's what would break down the silos, right? Um, even like the top. So if you really see that your organization has a silo and you're in a leadership position, modeling that behavior, maybe you're the liaison, maybe you're bringing that in, maybe you're asking questions, maybe there's a shared Google Drive or Slack channel, something you as the leader need to demonstrate the importance of bridging and breaking down those silos or using other people on other teams? Are you volunteering yourself um, to do some work for other teams? Tell me about this live stream leadership idea that you talk about in the book. Because I think that that relates really to just the information sharing and just getting out in front of people. Like I love the, I love the idea. Share it with the listeners. Yeah. So oftentimes you have leaders that you never, ever see. You see a name, you see a picture, but there's so much opportunity. Again, keep going back to right now of what leaders can do to get FaceTime with their employees and even sending out a survey and email something beforehand of what information do you need from me and just showing and sharing that. It can be literally live streaming leadership where you're asking questions Q&A like we're doing right now. And you can Love save it. that information for whether it's your social channels and, and chop it up a little bit so other people can see it for your customers. If they're walking through problems, you can put it on your internal drive. There's so many things. And I was talking to somebody actually earlier today about how they did that. They had survey results that came out that um, employees were upset that they got rid of the 401k but got raises. And a leader like did a video specifically on that's amazing. Reason. Yeah. And then people aren't complaining. They now they know the why. They know the a why. lot of it is you're like, what is going on? Why is this happening? But nobody was saying anything. So this leader took the initiative, did a three minute video about it. And every, I don't want to say everybody, but the results showed that it really improved their engagement and really improved how they felt about senior leaders after that. I uh, talk about meetings a lot in this podcast. I think people know my feelings on them. You touch on it in the book. And I'm just curious, like what um, what are your thoughts on meetings overall? And how do we make the best use of that time together? I, Where do you start? Meetings are, <laughs> no, I know. It's so funny. I was part of a training program where we spent a day talking about how to have effective meetings, which just seems so ridiculous to spend eight hours talking about how we should have less meetings. But our natural default is a meeting for 30 minutes or to 60 minutes, depending on what it is. And a lot of things can be answered via email. A lot of things can be answered through chat or instant message or Slack. But we're naturally deferring to that because that's what we're used to. And then I think what happens is you have a whole day worth of meetings and you've actually done zero work. You just went to all of your meetings. People save it for at night or whatever, exactly. or early in the morning. <laughs> it's like, uh, I'm working like two full days here in one day. And that's what's crazy about it. And I, I think there's a series really of questions you can even ask. Are you looking for feedback? Are you looking for a conversation? Are you looking for discussion? Are you simply information sharing? And the information sharing portions of your meetings, or if that's all it is, you need to find a way to share that information without having a meeting. People can read, people can watch videos. Those are just other 
ways. Um, there's nothing more frustrating than being at a meeting or meeting after meeting, even if the right people are in the room, because I'm sure you've had that too, where the wrong people are there and you're in a meeting talking about why you need an additional meeting for the one exactly. you should have now. The follow-up question I wanted to ask you related to this is what should go on a meeting invite? Because I... This thing drives me nuts. Like I will internally, I have a lot of meetings, but I probably have more meetings externally with people like yourself and other partners and, you know, other people I just, I regularly communicate with. And it's just so interesting how it's not all created equal. Like, like there's some people that are really good about putting agendas and like talking points, other people blank and you have no idea what you're walking into. And it's just like, you schedule an hour, you fill up an hour, and you don't even know what you accomplished. So give me some insight there. Yeah. Oh, it's so tough. Well, one, I think it's funny, even in your just like what the meeting is, I think people sometimes write conversation, discussion, this person plus this person. And then depending on how in advance they sent it, I don't remember what we were supposed to even talk about in the first place. So the description needs to be descriptive enough where you understand where the conversation is going. Is it an interview or performance review? Is this a conversation about project X? And then I think there should be an agenda depending on who that individual is. If this is more of an informal conversation, I don't think that you need a specific agenda. But if you want people to come prepared with something or you want feedback or a discussion, putting people on the spot in that moment is not the best way to do that. So sending out an agenda specifically of the topics that you're looking for information on, or if you want people to read an article or watch something, you're looking for feedback, sending it five minutes before at the beginning of the meeting, those thinkers, and we were talking about strengths, those people who need some time to take a step back and think who are going to give you amazing results won't have that. And I think also as somebody potentially newer, going back to even the generation piece, if you don't feel comfortable, you're not sure what to share. When you step in there, if you have the agenda, you know, okay, line item three, I'm confident in that. That's where I know I can speak up. I know I can share about this. So I think it also empowers your newer members to be a little bit more prepared than just jumping in and just feeling completely lost. Yeah, that's, that's, I think that's great advice. So a lot of us are working remote. We, you know, you're at home with your, your kids. I'm at home with my kids. Um, we're working across like time zones and zip codes and we're virtual. Like there's a lot of different tools to be using to connect with teams and individuals. What's the best way? I know it's a kind of a grandiose question, but like, what do you, what do you think? Well, it's funny. I think one of the, well, one of the hardest parts about owning a business, which is so strange, is figuring out the time yeah, zones. I can never, being on the East Coast is so different from the West Coast and my London partners. And that has been so confusing to me for some reason. But I am a huge fan of not using or adding additional tools unless you really specifically need to use additional tools because there's so many things that are shiny and glittery out there and then we just keep adding them. So now you need six different platforms to get to one result and people are uncomfortable with the first platform. So for me, if you are an employee and not a leadership role, I sometimes defer to your leader's way of communication or if they're going to, if you use Outlook as an organization, using the Outlook calendar to send them a meeting request is probably the best. Um, 
for like I like Calendly. I mean, there's so many different tools that I like to use. Yeah, now. there's lots of um, But for the back and forth piece, I really like Calendly to set up um, to set up calendar invitations or to schedule meetings with people. Slack is also a great resource to have the conversations. I mean, there's so many different ones out there, but I think it's figuring out what you want to get from those particular platforms first. Like, what are you looking to? What are you looking to do? What is your ultimate result? And then kind of working backwards. And do you have a system that already exists that can do that functionality versus trying to call something out and bring it back in? No, that was a strange Uh, answer. It's a a, a good one though. No, I appreciate that. Beyond conversations about business, what are some really good social activities that we can do virtually? I'm really struggling with this one. I'm going to be honest with you. I think there's a lot of Zoom fatigue right now. Uh, people are kind of tired of staring at a screen and connecting with people, but there's got to be a way we can draw better conversations and get to know each other at a deeper level. Because this, this is what we got. This is what we got. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It's So I've been doing a lot of Pictionary oh, categories, yeah. just things like that, that are really fun. And you can do that yeah. through Zoom. Breakout rooms in Zoom have been awesome. So they just added a new function. Before, it was you can manually put people into different rooms or it will automatically do it. Now there's a third function where you people can what? choose. So you just have to update the settings. It's amazing. It's a game changer because if, let's say you and I want to play categories, would you like a game yeah. thing? Two other people want to play Pictionary or four other people want to play Boggle. I'm just making up game now. <laughs> you can do that. Or if there are certain things that need to be deliverable by the end of your meeting, you and I are working on this project. This other person's working on this project and you can choose. Yeah where you want to go and then come back. Um, so it's not a sign beforehand you choose. It'll it's, it'll change your world. It's Mind amazing. blown. I didn't even know that was an option. Oh, it's awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah, because they don't publicize no. all the new stuff sometimes, but you do have to update the new one. But then I'm actually being at a conference tomorrow and we're doing a virtual cooking class. So ahead of time, they sent a postcard of what you should buy to do cooking, this cooking class. And then somebody's leading the virtual class i've done a lot of escape rooms you do like a happy hour uh cocktail mixing like a instead of uh, yeah at night cooking, actually can we, can we can we make a, a cocktail <laughs> i'm gonna obviously have a mimosa i mean that yeah that sounds great that sounds really delicious <laughs> um you wrote about toxic tones. I know I'm jumping all over the place, but there's no. so much good stuff and I want to make sure I cover what I wanted to cover. Um you talk about toxic tones in email and I see this time and time again, like passive aggressiveness. Uh it's just rampant in email. What are some some of the the ones that we should avoid that you see all the time? And what's a better way of doing it? Well, it's funny because I still find myself doing that. So just because I wrote a book and I do this stuff does not obviously mean I'm perfect by any means. Because sometimes you get so frustrated. The first thing, one, is to wait a little while. And I've learned that. Just don't send your angry email. Nobody wants your angry email. Even you'll regret sending it. But the ones of, I'm just circling back for your convenience. I'm reattaching this. Just checking in. These are things that really frustrate people on the other end. And you know it when you're sending that email, (laughs) you know that it's frustrating the other person because you're not doing it for their convenience. You're quite frankly doing it for yours because you're mad that they, you know, that they didn't do it. You're just bringing it back to their inbox that you're just checking in. Um, There's two. So there's actually a Gmail plugin called just say, sorry. No, just not sorry. I think that's what it's called. 
And it is awesome because it takes out words or shows you the words that diminish the value of your messages. What? I'm getting this. It's do not say sorry. Just just say just not sorry. Just not sorry. Wow. It it only works within with the Gmail. Yeah. But what I've done, because my work email is not through Gmail, I've gone and just searched how many times have I said, I'm sorry. How many times have I said just that didn't really make sense. You can, I am checking in on this. I want to see how you are. The word just really diminishes the value of that sentence. And then the, I'm sorry if it's justified completely makes sense. But oftentimes, especially women say sorry in things that are not necessary. So looking back and seeing what behavior and habits you have are really helpful. So the plugin is great for Gmail. And if you have it, it'll, it'll highlight those words. If you don't just look back, just look back on your messages and see how many times you use it. And before you send an email, just take a minute and, and kind of call through it and see what you have. You know, instead of saying sorry, what I've noticed that I'm, I'm, because I'm more aware of it, instead of saying sorry, I will say thank you. So, like, I I had to reschedule on you because I had kids issues on on Monday, and I think instead of saying I'm so sorry, like I just said thanks for your flexibility. I'm like, you know what I mean? Like, I just instead of feeling I don't know lesser than or I just think it's a better approach. I do too, and it's and I've seen it too for people. Let's say you're late to something. Instead of saying "I'm sorry, I'm late," thank you for waiting for me. I really appreciate it. And that simple twist. It's not that you're not apologetic for something right. like that, but you're showing appreciation for the other person for taking their time. So the thank you approach is, is awesome. Yeah, I love that. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention on the just the vocabulary stuff, I have a tool called Grammarly. I have a pro version, but there's a free version. It's helped me so much with those little filler words that diminish other, like the most important part of the message, like the just, it catches all that stuff. So it, I think it works pretty much in everything, email, Word docs, the browser, like all that. So hopefully people could check that out because it it will help, I think, in communication with teammates. Um, Mm -hmm. Say we go back to the office space. (laughs) I don't know when that's going to be. How do you make sure it feels collaborative? You have a good section on this about meeting spaces, colors, setup of chairs and tables. Like what do you, like what overall, what, what's your feeling on that? Well, it's interesting because even the word collaboration, I think, sometimes gets this buzzword or this negative connotation. I remember even thinking, well, supervisors saying it, and I just, in my mind, kept thinking, now I just have more work to do because you want to give me more things. But in terms of collaboration, I think the open floor plan won't be what it was before. And I think we can still use technology to be more collaborative. I was doing a workshop where some people... I was virtual and people were in person and it would have almost been easier. And I never thought I would have said this almost would have been easier if everybody was on zoom versus people in masks, six or more feet apart, not hearing each other. So how can we bring in technology to still create those opportunities for people to be able to work together? Cause it'll be a long time before you're cramming people in that huddle room that you just built or <laughs> that conference room, right? <laughs> that if, if there is that, there might be like plexiglass in between, exactly. which would be so stupid. <laughs> I would actually just ruin the, the vibe of the environment. So <laughs> no, exactly. Cause it's, it's tough enough when you have your mask on to see what people's expressions are. And if there's a way to still get, 
that um, without people feeling really uncomfortable because yeah. just shoving people in spaces right now, it's not the way to go. Do you ever feel just on the mask comment, do you ever feel like an idiot when you're smiling underneath the mask and you're like, oh yeah, I'm wearing a mask? Oh, constantly. <laughs> like, like they can't see that. I'm usually like, I guess maybe they could see the eye wrinkles or something, but I'm usually smiling when I walk by somebody like just, you know, be a warm welcoming, but it's with a mask, it makes it kind of hard around the office to do that. Oh, it's so hard. And it's hard to hear. And it's kind of tangential, but I'm only 5'2", so I'm not that... Sometimes the counter height of restaurants or takeout is way taller than I am. So you can't hear me. It's really comical at this point. You can't hear without my mask on. And then I'm trying to get on my tippy toes so you can see. I'm like, wait a minute, you can't... You can't even read my lips. So there's this whole other layer of what is the best way to communicate with people when you can't read their facial expressions, read any lips of any kind. (laughs) Got two more things for you and then I'll let you go. Um, You have a good section on ideas and I think like to really make an inclusive environment, everybody needs to be heard. People have great ideas at the, even at every level, the lowest level to the, to the highest level. And I think oftentimes I can fall into this trap too, where you get an idea and you're, and you say something, it's like almost dismissive, but it just kind of comes out naturally. Like, Oh, that's the way we've always done it or something like that. What are like those terms that you want to just completely get rid of and how, what's a better way to respond to ideas? And I've definitely fallen that trap and share some stories too in my, in the book about it because it's just your natural, no, that's terrible. Let's not do it. But I think it's, that's the way it's always been done. We've tried it. It didn't work or, you know, it's not broken. Don't fix it. We get stuck in these things because one, sometimes we just don't want to do it. We're used to the way things that have already been done, but it really does diminish people's interest in sharing. So once you squash that for someone, it's really hard for them to say, oh, okay, you know, let me share my idea. And especially even going back to generations, you haven't been there for that long. So you don't know what has been done and there's no way to have find that information out. So without sharing it, you wouldn't hear. And as a leader to create even those psychologically safe spaces, you should be throwing out ideas as well. You know, maybe some stick, maybe some don't, but showing and sharing, we're just, you know, we're sharing our ideas with each other and it's okay if 90% of them fail, we will find one of them that works. What are some great conversation starters or icebreakers that would get people out of their comfort zone? Because I'm of the belief that sometimes the loudest people in the room get, you know, all the airtime. And I think like, to get people out of their comfort zone, you got to give them a reason to start talking. And this, I know you've got some ideas for what questions to ask or what activities to do to get people talking. And they don't have to be stupid or silly. I mean, they can be, but there's got to be questions to ask people to get them, get them talking and yeah. to get to know them at a deep level. Well, it's funny because as much as I'm again in front of other people, I don't want to like public praise and the small talk really freaks me out. When I go to networking events, you'll never find me just walking up to one person. I can't. I can't do it. It feels so weird. Um, but right now, even asking, how are you? How, and then I am huge on context clues. So even looking in the back, I see that you have a bat, like somebody's playing basketball. I probably should know who that player is. Damian Lillard for the Portland Trailblazers. Come on. No, right, but then I can ask you questions about it. That's so cool. Why do you like the Trailblazers? Or what books do you have over there? Or cool plant. I'm huge on context clues. And even now, I mean, you might hear a kid, you might hear a dog ask how they're doing and then use that information to continue the conversation later on of, oh, I remember you told me that your kids were doing, were being homeschooled. How's that going? Keep that 
keep that up um, during other times or other situations. Find if there is a way that you can compliment somebody, sincerely do it. If you have a common connection, talk about that. Congratulate somebody on an upcoming event. Find you know some commonality that you have that are not yes or no answers. Try to keep it open-ended so it doesn't, one, feel like an interrogation, and two, there's a flow of something that can happen next. Yep. I often will think that like you ask a crappy question, you're going to get a crappy answer back. And like, how are you doing today? It's a, that's a terrible question and you're going to get a a generic answer back. We could be better at work about this. I think this is the, the, the nuts and bolts of really getting to know people at a deep level is asking the right questions. And I appreciate you saying that because I think that's, um, it was a good way to end. It's a good way to end this podcast because I think that's what we need to do is just like one conversation at a time, get to know people at a deep level, understand where they're coming from get to know them and work together better. And I think that's where we, ch- we change the workforce for the better. So your book, Alyssa, is How to Listen and How to Be Heard, Inclusive Conversations at Work. I only touched on a little bit of the book. There's so much more that we could have talked about. I want to encourage people to go pick up the book. Where can they find it? I assume Amazon, but anything else that you would want to point people to to go check it out? Sure. Um, You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. And even through my website, you can find out there's ongoing programs and classes and things to really bring the book to life. And that's not okay. That's okay. Coach.com. Awesome. Alyssa Carpenter, thank you for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate the conversation. Thank you for having me. 